Welcome to Sibylline Podcasts, part of our World Risk Register Threat Monitoring Service. These podcasts are released on a weekly basis, covering timely and relevant topics. In these discussions, we hope to shed light on evolving scenarios and provide actionable predictions and implications. We hope you enjoy listening and welcome any feedback. Hello and welcome to the podcast. In this session, we're going to be talking about Ukraine and the recent developments there. And with me to do that, I'm joined by our lead Eurasia analyst, Ed Johnson. So Ed, it's been a busy few weeks. Uh, What have been the major developments? Most certainly. So on the 25th of November, uh, Russian naval forces captured three Ukrainian uh, vessels that were attempting to pass through the Kerch Strait, through the newly constructed Kerch Strait Bridge into the Sea of Azov on a a freedom of navigation um, sort of maneuver. Uh, 24 sailors were seized, and this prompted on the 26th of uh, November the Ukrainian parliament to pass a martial law which was proposed by President Petro Poroshenko. Parliament decided to sort of water down his suggestions a little bit, so instead of it being passed for 60 days, it was for 30 days, and only uh, in 10 regions that border Russia or uh, sort of the Russian-backed Transnistrian uh, separatist republic on the border with Moldova. So in those 10 regions, martial law is, is, is in effect there. Consequently, after that as well, Poroshenko announced a ban on, uh, on Russian men entering the con- country sorry, between the ages of 16 and 60. So what do all these things mean? Let's, let's start, let's go chronologically, what, you know, starting with the, the seizure of the ships. I mean, how, have there been any impacts of that uh, in the last couple of weeks? Uh, you know, where, where are the sailors now and, and, and what does that mean? Well, I mean, the tensions in the, in the Azov Sea region have been growing pretty much since the, the early spring. Uh, you've been seeing sort of, you know, uh, increasingly precarious maneuvers by Russian coast guards um, towards Ukrainian vessels in, in the sea. Over 150 vessels bound for Ukraine or Ukrainian flagged vessels have been de- delayed or uh, inspected by uh, Russian coast guards, really kind of hampering the uh, two Ukrainian ports on the Azov Sea of Mariupol and uh, Berdyansk, which are crucial to the economy of southeastern Ukraine. As regarding the, the, the sailors, they were taken initially to, to Crimea and now they are in Moscow and they were being charged on violating Russian territorial waters illegally. So that's you know, not an uncommon development. There are you know, plenty of other Ukrainians who have been, been taken under perhaps dubious legal grounds and, and, and charged in Russia on, on various different laws. I think what's more interesting is the subsequent sort of deterioration in the, the legal framework between Ukraine and Russia, which has been ongoing since 2014, with the Ukrainian side having cancelled or let, it, let expire over 40 different treaties between the two countries. Obviously, martial law is a sort of separate thing we can come on to in just a moment, but I think it's just important to mention that you know, the Treaty of Friendship between Russia and Ukraine that was signed in 1997, I believe, Parliament voted yesterday to let that expire. So that will not be renewed in, in um, April of 2019, I believe. So that, that's just, again, indicative, whilst not perhaps super important, it's a, perhaps a superficial indication of, of the kind of deterioration and the growing animus between the two sides. And we, this probably will impact quite significantly on cross-border commerce and all these sorts of things moving forward. I guess, and the, uh, the changes in the Azov Sea to Ukrainian trade out of those two ports that you mentioned, probably also having a a similar effect to uh, to business continuity in the region. So you mentioned martial law. What's how's that working, and what's been the impact of that? I think it's it's certainly a, a bigger gesture than it is the the kind of serious uh, operational impact on the ground. 
Uh, it, gives, it gives the government and the local authorities the right to curb political demonstrations, uh, certain media freedoms, freedom of assembly, increase sort of police presence and security service presence. You know, the fact that it's only in those 10 regions means that your day-to-day operations in, in Kiev are, are unlikely to be affected and the government has the ability to sort of selectively apply uh, those restrictions within the 10 regions impacted. Mm. And and why now? I mean, we've seen we've seen all sorts of different developments and increases in intention, some of them much more significant, uh, if you think back to the invasion of Crimea, for example, or occupation of Crimea. So why is it that martial law has been has been brought in now? And is that a, is that a contentious development? It is most certainly within Ukraine. And you know, from the Russian perspective, you know, watch the Russian TV, their, 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 their angle on this is obviously that um, it was staged by President Poroshenko as a, as a move to a provocation, as you were, to kind of bolster his approval ratings before March. The election, presidential elections are March 31st uh, next year. What Poroshenko's argument is, is that this represents a very significant escalation in, in, in the, the ongoing conflict, given that it's the first time that Russian, Russian flagged vessels, Russian servicemen, have openly been aggressive towards Ukrainian servicemen. And this is accompanied by a sort of long-standing build-up of armed forces along Ukraine, on the, on the border with Ukraine and Russia. So that's the sort of argument coming from Kiev. You know, there is certainly a political element to this. There was a lot of fear in, in, in Ukraine amongst both uh, the sort of opposition to Poroshenko and the, the uh, kind of liberal reformer angle that he was seeking to use the imposition of martial law to push back the elections, the presidential elections towards the parliamentary elections, which will be held in October next year. This hasn't happened because of the sort of parliamentary horse trading and uh, wheeler dealing that went on to, to prevent this. Otherwise, the martial law would not have passed uh, through the parliament. So I think that that kind of sets the scene in terms of what the martial law is. But I think the most significant development, perhaps, for any any of our clients with operations in Ukraine is the um, restrictions on Russian males between the ages of 16 and 60 and uh, entering the country. Because this, you know, is, is, a, is quite a significant development that's unprecedented, largely. And so when did that come in and, you know, what's been the impact of that? I think it was it was introduced shortly after the uh, martial law was declared, and Poroshenko has promised further restrictions on Russian nationals remaining in Ukraine in terms of their ability to exchange money and hold certain financial privileges. The impact has been that you know simply people can't get into the country. Yeah, which is and, the- and so you know I guess given how interlinked Ukraine and Russia are, Ukraine businesses operating in Ukraine. Um, depend on uh, Russian technicians and individuals between those ages of coming into the country who, who now are unable to? Is, is that uh, Absolutely, case? yeah. The, the, the continuity of services, the continuity of supply chains and all those sorts of things are going to be directly impacted by this. But, I mean, the, the, the ultimate sort of... It, it really is what it says on the tin. You just simply can't enter the country. Um, and the, 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 the wide-ranging implications of that are obviously very serious. Yeah, OK. So what's the outlook for 2019? You, as you mentioned, we've got elections due on 31st of March. Is Russia likely to escalate the situation ahead of the elections or, or, or what, what do you think is going to happen? Well, I mean, this is the sort of one of the things we've been thinking about is what does the, the kind of Azov um, incident mean in terms of those elections? And certainly there are two ways of looking at it, that Russia is uh, trying to influence it and create instability in Ukraine, which is you know, a trend we anticipate to continue into 2019. I would be very surprised if there is a sort of uh, I think it's unlikely that there'll be a kind of significant escalation um, in, in terms of the conflict, either in the Donbass along the contact line there, or a sort of um, further move towards perhaps the city of Mariupol with its large steelworks, which would make those separatist republics economically viable. 
simply because I think that would serve Poroshenko very well in terms of boosting his popularity. He's running, a, running very poorly in the polls at the moment, around 8 9%, and, and is forecast to lose, any sec lose to any candidate in the second round. So I think he, for his perspective, what he's positioning himself as is a sort of guarantor of the nation, protector of sovereignty, his, his billboards say army, language, and faith. So any Russian aggression, a further Russian aggression towards Ukraine would directly benefit him, I, I believe. And so who is he running against uh, and how would uh, Russian aggression or the lack thereof impact their chances? Well, uh, the, the, the main, uh, the, the front runner at the moment is Yulia Tymoshenko, the sort of long-standing former prime minister who lost the 2010 election. And she is a you know, sort of core constituency amongst sort of older voters, quite a populist message, pledging to undo a lot of the IMF-backed reforms, um, decrease energy tariffs by half, increase pensions, these sorts of things. She has pretty good ties with Moscow, and I think it, you know she hasn't been that engaged in in the war, sort of the imagery of it, as other other politicians have. So she's leading the field. Uh, there's a uh, member of the former ruling party before 2014, Yuri Boyko, former energy minister. He's managed to consolidate some aspects of the opposition, but probably not enough behind him to make it through to the second round. And then there are a few other more celebrity candidates. So you have an actor, uh, Zelensky. Uh, who is who appears in a, a TV show about a fi being a fictional president, which is rather ironic, <laughs> and then a, a frontman of one of Ukraine's most popular uh, rock bands who hasn't declared yet. So I think it's it's likely to be a straight shootout between Poroshenko and Tymoshenko. In terms of how Russia perceives this, I mean, from their perspective, they really want Poroshenko out. And in terms of achieving that end, I think they will more likely go down a route of pursuing perhaps quite disruptive uh, cyber attacks, trying to cause, create provocations within Ukraine around key issues such as language and in particular faith. The Ukrainian church this autumn has been sort of succeeded in, in grant, being granted a Thomas or um, autocephaly from the Russian Orthodox Church by the sort of head church in Constantinople in Istanbul. And we see on the, on the 15th of December in Ukraine, there is a sort of council to determine what this will look like, what shape it will take. So this could you know, elevate tensions around who controls which church territory and, and these sorts of things. And, and you know, Russia is likely to, through its networks in, within Ukraine, to try and exacerbate divisions that are already there over, over this issue and make the government look weak and sort of disorganized. Okay, so um, to, just to round up then, in terms of flashpoints for the coming few months that may, uh, that may, see, that may kind of manifest some of these efforts by Russia and you know, naturally create disruption themselves, what are your, your key flashpoints to look forward to ahead of the election? Well, uh, obviously, as I mentioned, uh, the, the, kind of, uh, the fallout after um, the, the, the conference on the 15th will be quite significant. I would anticipate that it would be unlikely to kind of direct, be directly impacted in Kiev itself, although you may see some localised protests around the, the parliament there and outside the, the main monastery in Kiev. I would think that these sort of provocations we anticipate will more likely express themselves in, in southeastern Ukraine, in central Ukraine, um, on a sort of smaller, lower level. Beyond that, I think as we move into the end of the martial law period, at the, at the end of December, I think there may be some renewed calls by nationalist groups to, keep ex to extend this, given their sort of vocal support or vocal uh, opposition to Russia, perhaps. Um, I think that remains an unlikely prospect, um, given the, the sort of... Parliament's decision or Poroshenko's concession to lock in the presidential election on the 31st of March. So that is going ahead. And then the, the three-month campaign period begins prior to that in January. So I think that's the kind of 
over that period, that's when we would expect these sort of heightened instances of cyber attacks and, and kind of interdiction of supply chains and all the disruption that, that, that are caused by uh, cyber activities such as that. Brilliant. Ed, thank you very much. Thank you for listening, and we hope you have found this podcast useful. If you would like to learn more about our services, or if you have any questions or feedback, please get in touch at info at